Hi, this is Ed Sharlack, writer of television shows for 45 years and counting. And uh, you're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Warning, warning. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast's yearly 13 Days of Hallowtober event. I am your host, Rigor. Joining me today once again is author and podcaster, S.A. Bradley. Glad you could be here, Scott. Thanks so much for having me back. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for joining us. And also joining us today is new frequent guest co-host, Michael. How's it going, Michael? Hey, hey, what's happening? It's Tuesday. I keep forgetting. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, I was just saying before we recorded that I didn't even know what the hell day of the week it was. Yeah. All right, um, so we are continuing yeah. our yearly event called 13 Days of Hallowtober. Our theme this year is vampire movies, and today we are going dist- to discuss the Catherine Bigelow film Near Dark from 1987. So sit back and prepare to be scared. Class is in session. Check out time. 
off some time, son. God damn, this is my family. Let him go. Near dark. Pray for daylight. The night has its price. One night, Caleb Colton, a young man in a small town, meets an attractive young drifter named May. Just before sunrise, she bites him on the neck and runs off. The rising sun causes Caleb's flesh to smoke and burn. May arrives with a group of roaming vampires in an RV and takes him away. The most psychotic of the vampires, Severn, wants to kill Caleb, but May reveals that she had already turned him. Their charismatic leader, Jesse Hooker, reluctantly agrees to allow Caleb to remain with them for a week to see if he can if he can learn to hunt and gain the group's trust. Caleb's unwilling to kill to feed, which alienates him from the others. To protect him, May kills for him and then has him drink from her wrist. Jesse's group enters a bar and kills the occupants. They set the bar on fire and flee the scene. All except May want to kill Caleb after he endangers them by letting the only living occupant escape. But after Caleb endangers himself to help them escape their motel room during a daylight police raid, Jesse and the others are grateful and temporarily mollified. A camaraderie commences with Caleb asking Jesse how old he is and Jesse responding that he fought for the South, making him about 150 years old. Severn had earlier suggested that he and Jesse started the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Meanwhile, Caleb's father had been searching for Jesse's group. A child vampire in the group, Homer, meets Caleb's sister, Sarah, and wants to turn her into his companion, but Caleb objects. When the group argues, Caleb's father arrives and holds them at gunpoint, demanding that Sarah be released. Jesse taunts him into shooting him, then regurgitates the bullet once he gets shot before wrestling the gun away. In the confusion, Sarah opens a door, letting in the sunlight and forcing the vampires back. Burning, Caleb escapes with his family. Caleb suggests they try giving him a blood transfusion. The transfusion unexpectedly reverses Caleb's transformation. That night, the vampires search for Caleb and Sarah. May distracts Caleb by trying to persuade him to return to her while the others kidnap his sister. Caleb discovers the kidnapping and his tire slashed but gives chase on horseback. When the horse shies and throws him, he's confronted by Severn. Caleb commandeers a tractor trailer and runs Severn over. The injured vampire suddenly appears, crawling up onto the hood of the truck and manages to rip apart the wiring in the engine. Caleb jackknifes the vehicle and jumps out as the truck explodes, killing Severn. Seeking revenge, Jesse and his girlfriend Diamondback pursue him but are forced to escape in their car as dawn breaks. Attempting to save Sarah, May breaks out of the back of the car with her. May's flesh begins to smoke as she is burned by the sun, but she carries Sarah into Caleb's arms, taking refuge under his jacket. Homer attempts to follow, but as he runs, he dies from exposure to the sun, gloriously exploding in the middle of the road. Their sunproofing ruined, Jesse and Diamondback also begin to burn. They attempt to run Caleb and Sarah over, but fail, dying as, the ca as they catch fire, which consumes the car and it blows up. May awakens later, her burns now healed. She too has been given a transfusion and is cured. She and Caleb comfort each other in, reass in a reassuring hug as the film ends. So, first impressions, Michael. When did you first see this? I don't know. I didn't see it in the theater. I know I saw it on video at some point. I don't know. <laughs> I'm really bad at remembering when I first saw things. Um, <laughs> but I think it must have been with you and Chris and whatever, because the, my interest was peaked in seeing it 
uh, upon finding out that it had three of the actors from Aliens in it. Um, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and what's the woman's name? Uh, Jeanette Goldstein. Gold. Yeah, Jeanette Goldstein. Jeanette yeah. Goldstein. Uh, yeah, so I knew that they were in it, and that was like the whole motivation for me to see it. What stuck in my mind from the very first time was the, the, the scene where they go into the roadside bar, and I always had it in my head that the Bill Paxton vampire put coins in the jukebox and turned on that song, but it turns out that's not what happens. It's already playing. And, um, but they go in there. There's that whole scene just, I found really like awesome and disturbing at the same time. Cause it showed how powerful the vampires were and how little compassion they had. And I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So that, that, that scene stuck in my head. That was my first impression was that stuck in my head. So, nice. and then over the years, I kind of forgot about the rest of the movie, except for that scene. And I knew there was a blood transfusion somewhere in there, but I, I forgot most of the movie until I saw it. <laughs> Excellent, Scott. I, I had seen it in 1987. I, had, I was in the military at the time. I was out in New Hampshire, and there was a article in the Boston Globe about it. And they really kind of glowed around uh, this really small, low-budget film. Uh, and they definitely singled out Bill Paxton. Uh, and I wasn't quite aware of who Bill Paxton was at that time, even though I'd seen him in like Weird Science and Aliens, and I didn't realize he was in the original Terminator. Uh, that all came to me afterwards. But I had a friend who worked in movies in uh, Manhattan, and he called me and he said, you're the horror guy, you have to see Near Dark. It's, it's a, remember this name, Catherine Bigelow, man, because it's kind of blowing people away. I was going, really? He said, yeah, it's, she's almost like a Walter Hill kind of uh, protege. And I said, really? And I said, that sounds interesting. And he goes, this, this movie, uh, they showed it at the, uh, it might have been at uh, MoMA, I'm not sure, Museum of Modern Art. But they had this thing where I guess it was a, partially a, a salute to Walter Hill and they showed the driver and another of his films. And then they had Catherine Bigelow and they showed the loveless, which was her first film with William Defoe right. and then near dark. And uh, he said, you know, she was so good in the uh, Q and a afterwards. And we were all just really enamored by this movie. It was only like $5 million. Got to see it. So I had really high hopes uh, when I went in to see it. And yet I tried to keep myself from knowing too much about it, uh, except for the, the photo that I saw in the Boston Globe, which was Severin hanging off of the uh, semi. So it's a very, you know, striking image to start with. And I remember watching the movie and I was just like, fuck, this is really frigging cool. This is the kind of thing that I love. It was the indie film concept of uh, The Outsider. It's like a Hal Ashby part, uh, uh, Sam Peckinpah, uh, this uh, Jonathan Demme kind of thing going on in here where we're looking at uh, iconoclasts. We're looking at people who are outsiders and that that life can be terribly, terribly lonely. And so I was really uh, uh, loving it because there weren't fangs. Uh, there wasn't talk about vampires, but it was so obviously vampires. And I thought it was super stylistic for how much money they had. In fact, 
looking back at it, knowing that it was only a $5 million movie, it's amazing how much they stretched that dollar. Uh, even though knowing full well that a lot of what would have cost a lot didn't cost that much because she got the cinematographer from the Terminator uh, to be her cinematographer. All of this on the good graces of Cameron. So the three actors that are the main, uh, the main characters that were in aliens, uh, she actually sat with him and said, Hey, can, can we use these folks? They'd be perfect because they already know each other. So, you know, money saving stuff there, hmm. but at the same point, uh, it really is uh, uh, this low budget triumph. As far as I was concerned, I watched it and I was super excited uh, a lot of times when you have low budget films like this, they spend a lot of money on one scene and then there's no other set pieces. And this movie has like three really good set pieces in it. There's, of course, the bar, which is the big one. But there's also the shootout in the dark with uh, the uh, sla- uh, slash shafts of light coming through. Uh, and there's also the the uh, standoff at the end, which is where you have uh, Western and horror movie thoroughly reunited where he's on a horse and he's going up against a, a semi truck so it's not a western like in the cowboy type of western but it's a western kind of like you know fat city you know, something like right. that that you would have our last picture show yeah and so you get this idea of uh you know the dying romance there's the dying romance of the vampire and there's a dying romance of the western and i think that both of those worked really well in that film so when i saw it i was really jazzed couldn't wait to see what uh, uh bigelow was going to do next and i i think it was blue steel and i was not pleased <laughs> with that one but uh, i thought it was okay right but i thought it was a real step back from where she went uh, even though there there are uh, pro, I don't know, problems. There's things that are not up to really high, high marks and a little bit of clumsiness inside of Near Dark. But I think for the most part, it works for the film more than a lot of other films that cost a lot more than that. And uh, I think that it was the first movie that I saw that did vampirism in a modern setting that really worked, that hmm. it didn't go down this romantic way. Uh, uh, one of the things that I, I wrote was uh, what it means to be world weary yet still have to live forever. And the idea that you have these characters here and they don't turn into business tycoons or anything. They are exactly who they are. They're stuck in arrested development. They all come from different eras of Americana. You know, you have uh, Dust Bowl is, uh, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting her name now. Um, Diamondback. Diamondback. Yeah. You know, and you've got the Civil War with Jesse uh, uh you've got yeah you've got Bill Paxton uh who's kind of like a, a 50s greaser in his way uh and you have uh the, the young kid uh um Homer 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 thank you and uh, who's Joshua Miller who's Jason Miller's uh he's related to Jason Miller oh I didn't know that yeah, it's the son, the young son, or the, the Jason Patrick's son, somewhere in there. And so uh, when I looked at it again, I'm like, going, oh, you can see it in the face now. But they, they all come from like these different eras that there are in America. And they don't make themselves bigger or better through time. They don't, uh, they're a family uh, that is anarchists or radicals. They're just outside, they're nomadic, they've learned nothing in the hundreds of years. 
you know, they're still at that arrested development of the South's going to rise again. Yeehaw, all of that stuff. They haven't changed at all. And I think that that's a very interesting thing for them to be talking about. They're going to be themselves forever. And that uh, you get that really with Homer because Homer is someone who's the oldest of all the uh, all the vampires there. But he's also in a 10 year old's body. And so you get the idea that he's physically in that arrested development, but everyone else is uh, in an arrested development that is uh, they've held that mantle of who they were and they just they're caught in time. Yeah. So I thought it was really cool. Right, right. So now, you said you were in New Hampshire when this came out. Do you recall if it had a wide release in the Boston area? Because, you know, Michael and I grew up north of Boston. I would have seen this in the theater if I known I was it was there. You know. Yeah. No, I I, I doubt it was a uh, uh, anything but out, like outside, like down in Faneuil Hall or something like that. One of those places. It might have actually been, if I remember correctly, wasn't there? Uh, Orson Welles Theater yes, down there. Yeah, it might have been at the Orson Welles. You know, I, I, it certainly wasn't in a uh, in multiple cinemas. I mean, right. the weird thing is, we used to get strange off uh, off not off brand, but uh, ones that didn't get really huge distribution used to show up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, for some reason. Huh. Uh, I I saw Day of the Dead there, and I saw um, Demons. Oh wow. Oh, I think and I saw I, Demons there, actually. Yeah, and I saw, um, what was the other one that nor- people normally didn't see in the theaters? Uh, well, Near Dark was one, but uh, there, there was another one that I'll, I'll come to sometime in the middle of this and just right. spout out the name. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there were a few that were just kind of like they had super small, oh, Big Trouble in Little China. Yes. They had really, really small distribution. They were drive-ins. They show up in drive-ins, but there was a theater uh, right outside of the uh, the military base. And there was, uh, I actually saw uh, Big Trouble in Little China on base. And that's when I knew that it was not making any money <laughs> because it was like showing up in the military base. And I'm going, oh man, that can't be good. But yeah, uh, so I would say that Near Dark probably played one of those small ones right, that right. there. But I, but I remember going to Boston to see it. Yeah, Michael and I, we saw Big Trouble in Little China at our hometown theater in Stoneham, huh. Stoneham, Massachusetts. You remember that, Mike? There was two other people in the theater, and then yes. you stood up and screamed at the end when Jack Burton caught the knife and threw it back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grabs it, throws it, and goes, right the guy's head, and stood up. Oh! <laughs> but I, I remember reading about this in Fangoria. Like I said, I don't think I saw it in the theater, but I definitely caught it on video, especially around that time I was working at a Blockbuster video, so I, I made a copy of it, which I probably still have somewhere. But I, I loved it. I loved it to death. Um, I thought it was great to see the actors from Aliens in it in it together. Um, it's one of those movies that when I first got it on VHS, I must have watched it like 20, 30 times. And then I haven't seen it wow. since then. And... You know, and it was as I was rewatching this, I'd forgotten a lot of it, m- mainly the last third I had forgotten. But there are so many lines of dialogue in there that have stuck with me throughout mm-hmm. the years. And I, I think the movie held up very well. I think it still works. Um, and ba- um, to, your, to your point, Scott, uh, about them being outsiders, I find the irony in the fact that Caleb is an outsider in a group of outsiders. Mm-hmm. I thought that was yeah. really interesting. I, I always thought it was interesting that they just have this code, right? And uh, I, I laughed when you said uh, charismatic leader, uh, <laughs> Jesse Hooker. I'm like, 
he punches things. Right. <laughs> he gets yeah. mad and goes, we're going to ride through. Slam. Yeah. He's th- he's coming with us. Slam. You know, he's just, <laughs> yeah. I just, right. I just took that from Wikipedia. So I didn't yeah. read it. So, so I laugh because he, he looks amazing in that movie. And, you know, he did all this method stuff to get ready for that. Uh, so he went down to 140 pounds to make himself gaunt and bird-like in that in his chest and stuff. So he's certainly something to take a look at. Uh, but I think it's funny that they they are lawless, yet they have this small right. amount of rule. You know, there's like the, the 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 law of once he's bit, you know, he's he's one of us. We're not necessarily happy about it, but uh, we're going to see about taking him along. And it's almost like this idea of. You know, kind of being an outsider, yeah. wanting to be an insider. There, uh, I really, I'm not a big fan of the Lost Boys. I think I've seen it twice, and part of it is because it killed this movie. You know, they came out at the same time, and Lost Boys just ran this <laughs> movie completely over. But, uh, but there's a line in there that talks about, uh, "I wish I could see the sun again." There's like a, a line like that, and it's very wistful. And so I feel that the the whole thing of Diamondback and uh, Jesse kind of trying to get Caleb to work is like this remembering of what it was like when they had right. something early. You know, uh, he cha- he turns her. So there is that whole thing that at a certain point, even though you've got this curse, you're hungry. You know, you can do anything you want. You're still hungry for connection. And there's something about someone freshly coming in, having to go. It's almost like being a a horror (laughs) fan as well, which is like, hey, you know, we all had to see the movies the first time. But after that, we we can't see them in that fashion again. So we tell other people about the movie so they can have that brush of like, oh, I can't believe that movie near dark. That was awesome. And you feel a little bit of that vicarious thrill. And so, yeah, there is that whole outsider insider thing that I think goes on. Uh, they're, they're tragic in that way uh, that they never really come out and say it, but you feel that, especially yeah. when they're dying at the end, that there's like, man, that was a hell of a ride. You know, it's almost like I wish, you know, there could have been more to this and it's an interesting point too that they live forever and they haven't changed at all so it tells me that deep down in this movie there is this saying that perhaps mortality is so important because it gives us a beginning middle and end which means at some point we're going to try and be better we're going to try and attain something if it's just a constant syrup of the same thing every day for eternity, the motivation to right. change. Well, Isaac Asimov that? touched on that yeah, in his foundation series not- where humans got to the point where they lived to 200 years old and society stagnated because there was no impetus to, to create and invent anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's, uh, I, I think of that every so often because part of me says, I wish we lived to 200 just so like on political cycles, people could see the bullshit. They go, wait a second. I saw that 14 <laughs> times in the last 110 years. I'm not falling for it again. But, uh, you know, I, right, I think right. we'd probably still fall for it. <laughs> but, no, yeah, but, Michael, I wanted to correct something. You yeah. and I were talking off mic uh, after we did a recording the other day, and I was trying to remember who directed this, and it was I was saying it was James Cameron's wife. Oh, uh, yeah. And you said, oh, Galen Hurd. I'm like, yeah, that's who it was. I was wrong. <laughs> It was Catherine yeah, Bigelow. Was However, Bigelow. she was married to James Cameron. Um, Galen Hurd was yeah. married to him from yeah. 85 to 89, and Catherine Bigelow was married to him from 89 to 91. 
So he goes through uh, <laughs> he goes through wives like like yeah. Swiffer brushes, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and quite honestly, uh, they don't fare that well. You know, Bigelow was the one who had enough talent, and I guess she was also a badass enough. Gail and her did fine, right. but she was more of a producer. And until Walking Dead really hits, she was kind of you know floating. I mean, he you know say what you will about the guy as a director uh but as a human being you know he's 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 uh he's done some nasty stuff to people that uh, oh, he no longer loves um so Catherine Bigelow she as you mentioned she did um she directed Blue Steel with Jamie Lee Curtis and I think Clancy Brown's in that one right I think he's the villain in that hmm. is I... he? no uh Ron the villain Silver. is That's Ron Silver right. Yeah, one of the most. Yeah, that's your villain. <laughs> but she also did Point Break, which I I think we all saw that Mike in the theater. We, yeah, I love that movie, especially oh, on the big yes. screen. Oh, I I still love it. That was like when I said, "Okay, she's now yeah. in full peck and paw." This is like uh, amazing. There's that that scene with James Lebeau yeah. hanging out of the plane, yeah. bleeding. He's shot. <laughs> he has whiskey in one hand. He has bloody dollar bills in the other. See you in hell. And he rolls yeah. off, and I'm like. Peck and paw <laughs> couldn't have done that better. I, I was like, "Fuck me!" Uh, there's a thing that we do out here in San Francisco that's called Point Break Live, and what they do is they have, pull someone out of the, they do the movie, and they have actors doing it down on the oh, stage wow. while the movie's playing, and they bring someone up to be Keanu every night, someone from the audience, because he, yeah, they just. <laughs> He, he doesn't have a lot of emoting uh, in certain ways. So they just tell him, Johnny Bravo, get down. And they had have shirts. Everybody go yell, make it two. You know, all That's the awesome. time for. Like Rocky Horror Picture Show almost. Yeah, almost. So it's so beloved. And uh, because it's so over the top, yet so good, right? It's yeah. super rare for over the top to be so good. Yeah. Michael, what did you think of her directing here? I think it was really good. I mean, in terms of visually maintaining the mood, uh, not just the m mood, but like the whole movie has kind of a dusty, dirty, half-lit, despair-soaked <laughs> <laughs> like feel to it. It's it's like it's not like a lot of movies that sort of you know uh, jump from one flashy scene to another. It's 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 grim and um i think there's a lot of good use of in spite of the haziness there's a lot of good use of light and shadow uh and the actors are all pretty believable i do think well i don't know i mean i i, I guess it's, it's hard to know whether galen hurt is like an actor's director or if she's more of like a visual director like uh i mean bigelow galen Hurd. Bigelow. what did i say <laughs> you're galen hurt yeah I said Galen Hurd again. Yeah. Ah, I've got that in my brain. Um, overall, I thought it was really good. I'm thinking mostly about the way the, the, the sharpness and the, 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 the perspective wise, the scene where the one thing I really noticed was the scene where the, um, uh, Bill Paxton is on the top, the front of the semi and he punches his hand through it. And, uh caleb you know i guess tries to jackknife the truck and it bursts into flame and you know he jumps out and as the uh no it's before that it's before he gets in the semi where bill paxton picks him up and throws him 
and he lands like right in front of the camera and you can see Bill Paxton in the distance. Right. You can see how far he threw him. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm like blanking on names, Caleb, when Caleb gets up or at some point in that scene, there's like one of the spurs from his boot is like on the street and it's just this tiny little thing. And I just thought it was like really cool to have that in the foreground and, and the, the fire in the background, or I don't remember the exact shot, but that was cool. So yeah, I guess I'll save the actor right. stuff for when we talk about the actors. But yeah, directing wise, I I, I liked the consistent tone, visual tone. I think uh, definitely uh, the directing was really strong. As, you know, now we can say uh, it's silly almost to say for a woman, you know, because <laughs> there's been so many good uh, women directors uh, that have done that. But at that point, I mean, she was stuck yeah. in this spot where it was kind of like the only way she was going to get respect was to be able to slug it out. You know, so she's doing action films, which are not the parlance uh, of women directors. But what I thought was really a sign of her, her strong directing, not only, you know, color tone, things like that, uh, really nice little humorous flourishes, like having the, uh, the oil derricks for uh, while she's getting bloods being sucked from her. And, you know, the way that they show the horse and stuff like that, those wonderful little pieces are great, but it's, it's how she deals with, the ancillary characters, the the secondary characters, the the people who are stand in or not stand ins, but background folk in the bar and stuff like that. Everybody feels really believable, except for <laughs> Tim Thomerson, who I just remember as a stand up really? comedian. So it was really hard for me to take him as yeah, I remember him as uh, a stand up comedian before he hit you know, uh, as an actor for uh, trancers That's and stuff. Funny. I guess uh, you could say, but uh, yeah, he 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 always hit me as a little bit off in the movie compared to everybody else but uh uh, if you look at the stuff that goes on in the uh, in the greyhound station with uh the police officer the the plainclothes detective the guy who's giving him the the ticket uh in the greyhound and they're just looking at each other it's not overacted uh the angle is really great it's low uh so you you get almost like a lumet feel to the bus station uh there's also uh really strong uh, people who are in the bar i don't know yeah. nothing man you know the the the, uh, the two guys that are in there feel like they might be real bikers that they're going uh, it's less believable him saying i don't do nothing man than how he holds a knife you know how he holds a knife looks really real uh james legro is in there right he's just uh the right. scared little badger kid who uh they let they let run out the out the window but he uh i don't, didn't know it was him when i initially saw him because he kind of transforms a little bit but the way that everybody looks uh the feel of those scenes there's a a grit to them uh, there's a reality to them. It doesn't feel like uh, they're not in a Holiday Inn or whatever that hotel is uh, that they're there. Uh, there's not an unbelievable set in in the piece. Uh, there's mm. not a moment where uh, the the actors aren't uh, kind of doing business where it feels okay, you know, or it doesn't feel okay. It feels right. In other words, there's not a misstep in that. Uh, even when like Jesse, I love the little pieces. Like Jesse is trying to get the old man, bing, 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 bing. When they're at the uh, little cottage, the sun's on the rise, right? And he's trying to get the guy to wake up, come, he's going to give him cash and everything. And the sun is starting to show, starting to creak across the, the, the table. So he keeps looking down at that. 
and looking at the guy and says, key, please. Guy puts the key down. And he has to put a rag over his hand while he's looking at the guy and goes, I get yeah. around here every century or so, you know, book me, you know, bring me back. So there's that whole thing of where it could have just been him walking in there or not even going in that bit room at all. But they add this bit of business that feels very realistic. And there's this extra bit of suspense. You know, the sun is starting to come through. So you get the idea that there's always this thing. In fact, what's really cool is like how well-oiled this family is, right? There's the whole thing of, okay, if we get a, a new vehicle, here's the foil, here's the spray paint, boom, 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 boom. It's yeah. done. They're driving. You know, it's it's like they're a real unit that's been out there for a bit. So I think her directing of yeah. action was amazing uh, and uh, her understanding of how to talk with her editor. And as an actor's uh, director, I think she's very wise. And first off, coming up with the idea, let me get these folks that have just killed themselves in a James Cameron <laughs> film. And I think Bill Paxson said that that really hurt him you know it was yeah. a tough tough shoot for him and the only way he got through it was because uh lance henriksen really took him under wing so having that continue on to the next piece that they were going to do i think was really smart of her i think it was really smart for her to come to each actor in the way that they needed to be talked to jenny writes obviously going off of what she's not improvising she has that character. She's playing that character. Uh, but then you have like uh, Bill Paxton. Bill's making up lines left and right on that thing. They gave him a shot of vitamin B12 because <laughs> he had migraines. And so that whole bar scene, he's like, he's really, uh, he's really feeling that. And, and then you have uh, uh, Lance Henriksen. She's wise enough to let them go off and do things the way they need to do things, not step on, on toes. Listen. And that was what uh, I think Henriksen said. He goes, you know, I'm, I'm part of this movie. And I start talking to her and I said, I have this backstory about this guy. Civil War, he's in the uh, Southern Navy. He's not Army. He's Navy. And he's out there and cannonballs are shooting the ship and splinters are killing everybody. And the, uh, the ship starts to sink into the marshes. And uh, my uh, Jesse's chest is wide open. The steam's coming off it and the harpies start to appear. And he goes, and a harpy comes over and takes pity and changes him. And she, he said the whole time she's leaning forward going, you're thinking of this. This is what you think? He goes, at that moment, I was sold. You know, I'm going to do anything I need to for this person because she just listened to everything that I said that was backstory. And he went and spent a thousand dollars on like these nails to make sure that he had yeah. the Max Shrek fingernails that he had them put on semi-permanently. And then he took pliers and cut the, the nails that they were all jagged and stuff. And he would stay in character at certain points. And so to me, uh, first time director, I think the director of photography, uh, the guy who did uh, Terminator, said, you know, it was obvious she didn't have experience on a set. You know, that her, she co-directed two things. This is her first time alone. It's not a huge set, but it's a big enough set. He goes, but she knew film. And that was the difference. He goes, uh, there's, she may have not known precisely how to walk around a set, but she knew how film works and she knew film language and that it immediately relaxed me and uh, let me know, oh, we're going to have shorthand. And she drew. So she came from an art background. And so she drew storyboards that she could give to him. And he goes, <laughs> oh, I can have fun with this. Let's get rid of all the lights. And we're just going to shoot pinholes in, in, you know, in the set. And all of that stuff, I think, comes from the director uh, being able to to 
let the ego push away a little bit and at other times be very strong in a vision that uh, everybody can kind of jump upon. So I think that's why that movie uh, sings as much as it does. And uh, Catherine Bigelow co-wrote this with, I always want to call him Eric the Red. It's just Eric Red. Yeah. Well, you may as well call him Eric the Red. Yeah, he doesn't have a huge career, but he wrote, he of course wrote Blue Steel and he wrote The Hitcher which I've forgotten, but I remember seeing his name yes. on the credits of that movie when that came out. And he also wrote, hey, Michael, you're going to love this one. He wrote a movie called uh, Bad Moon. <clears throat> Excuse me, Bad Moon. It's the werewolf movie with Michael Pare. And uh, I went with, yes. I made Chris Baskin go see it because I knew he loved uh, werewolf movies. And the movie starts, he knew nothing about it. And the credits come up at the beginning and he goes, you took me to see a Michael Pare film? <laughs> <laughs> which i happened to see like a year uh, ago i watched it with my grandson and it was is as bad as i remembered it being it's just i don't oh, know really it's, yeah it's a whole tangent we could do another day but in our cast we've got right right adrian pazdar who plays caleb colton and it's funny because well first of all i used to call him the poor man scott bacula because he kind of resembles scott bacula but i <laughs> I hadn't seen him for a long time and I was watching the show Heroes when that first came on and I'm like, why do I recognize that guy? Yes. And he was Nathan Petrelli on Heroes and he's been on yeah. Supergirl. He played Morgan Edge. He was uh, Glenn Talbot on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He was even on an episode of The Rookie and he's just been in so many things yeah. over the years. Yeah. Heroes was his resurgence yeah. and I was so happy for him. It's so weird yeah. when you see someone whose career yeah. doesn't kind of fly in something that you really like. And uh, then when they finally do make that little step yeah. up, you're like, yeah. And he was he was good here. I believed him as Caleb, you know. Yeah, New York City boy, right? He's not a he's not a, a guy out there and uh, <laughs> eating pace. This uh, also going New York City. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I thought he was really good. Now Eric Red, uh, the reason that I said that whole thing about Eric Red is you folks know what With happened. Eric the Red or right? Eric the, the author? Whole... No, Eric Red. He. Uh, uh, reason yeah. he doesn't work much is that he was involved with vehicular manslaughter. He drove oh. right into a restaurant in LA oh my God. and killed a couple people. And he got out and he tried to kill himself while he was walking away. He took a steak knife. He's trying to stab his heart and they grabbed him oh, and wow. uh, he walked. Now that's the big controversy about the guy. And uh, he, something about a series of blackouts and stuff. He may have been in a Jeep Wagoner and blacked out, but uh, there was this whole really weird, He's one of those guys that are in Hollywood that people are like, how is he still working? Because this terrible thing happened. And so it's one of those things that kind of brings a pall when I think about the movie because it's so good. And he and, you know, even his writing is really good. And I love The Hitcher. I think The Hitcher is one of those great writing moments as well. And uh, and yet uh, whenever I hear about him, I can't Hmm. help but think of that, that, that fucked up tragedy. Unbelievable. Uh, we've also got Jenny Wright, who played May. Um, I didn't know. I don't know much about her. I haven't seen her and stuff. Although she was in Pink Floyd's The Wall, Young Guns Two. Uh, she was in Twister. I don't remember yeah. her in that. And uh, same thing with Lawnmower Man. It's. I guess I've seen her in other movies, but I never really recognized her. Yeah, she I dropped out. When when we saw um, Near Dark, I recognized her from Pink Floyd's oh, really? The Wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, she's but hard I, to forget I, I, now. I yeah, but I don't think I've seen her in any of the other ones you mentioned. She did I Madman, which oh, yeah. is excellent. 
uh, low budget horror movie, and she's the uh, the lead actress. That's in right. That. And she just kind of got out of uh, acting. Uh, nobody's necessarily knows precisely why. She's starting to do conventions again, and uh, I, I follow her on Twitter, and I don't say anything, you know, because she ha- uh, it, it feels like she may have had a really bad experience and went through a couple things in her life and is now just kind of like going okay now i can deal with people again so uh she i mean i have the uh the i don't have it on me but i have the old near dark dvd that goes for a bunch of money now i had no idea it was a collector's edition but it's uh, anchor bay and it's like a two disc thing and they have uh, a documentary where they're speaking with adrian pazdar and he's just talking wonderful things about her just saying you know how how she had this specific way of acting and being that worked so well as that venus flytrap in the beginning and stuff and he's just like oh she was so great and, and he just looks at the camera and goes you know wherever you are jenny i i miss you i wish i could hear from you and so it was like this weird plaintive moment in this documentary like nobody wow. could find her you know uh david gregory was the director of that and he's the guy who runs severin films and so he uh, he had done that, and he could not find her. So you know, she just kind of said, "I'm right, done with right. this." Now, of course, as we mentioned, we've got our aliens trifecta of Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein. You know, we could do a show on each one of these actors. It's just unbelievable. You know, I just want to touch on them a little bit. Of course, uh, Henriksen was Bishop in Aliens. He was on the show Millennium, and one of my favorite roles was he was in the movie Pumpkinhead, which I love that movie. Pumpkinhead, yeah. yes. Such a great actor. Love that. Yeah. Then, of course, you, you mentioned Bill Paxton being, he was in Terminator, of course, folks at home listening. If you rewatch the movie, he's one of the, the gang at the beginning that Arnold encounters when he first mm-hmm. arrives in 1984. <laughs> I think this guy's a couple kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's another one, though, with so Do many great lines in so many movies, like in Aliens yeah. and True Lies. Mm-hmm. and tw- <laughs> Well, Twister, he didn't have a yeah. lot of good lines, but... Weird science. Yeah. Chet, Chet, yeah. Was it Chet? I guess it was Chet. Yeah. Okay. Now, in the Terminator 2, or not 2, also, in the Terminator also, that gang, one of the other yes. guys that's in there is one of the, the I think, was it um, Cobra? Yes. Was he the bad he was, guy in no, Cobra? No, uh, was he? I think so. Mike, uh, Mike he was the, the Stallone one. Stallone movie Cobra? He was also the helicopter pilot in and Miracle Mile. If you he was the, the bad guy Earth. in the first power with... Um, Lou Diamond Phillips, and he's in the in the distance. Going, yes, piggy, piggy. Oh, piggy, piggy. <laughs> yeah. He's got like these scars <laughs> on his face. You're pissing me off, like... Roger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember him. Oh, he's creepy. Yeah, as he's fuck. one of those gang. He's a guys. great villain. Oh my god. Laundry day. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what he's nothing <laughs> clean, right? Yeah, nothing clean, right? I love Bill Paxton's <laughs> line in Boxing Helena when he walks in and sees what's been done to Cheryl and Fenn, and he's like, you. Turned her into a freak. <laughs> his, his line readings are fantastic. And it's funny. He was a, a street tough really? when he was a kid. He got into a lot of trouble. And I didn't know that. He was like from Fort Worth. And uh, in the documentary, he kind of talks about how uh, he was afraid of authority figures. And so there's a moment where he was driving home with uh, Lance Henriksen, who was in character, stayed in the costume, all that stuff. And he decides to speed in a, uh, a convertible. And he gets pulled over and he's doing the shit, the Jesse shit with this cop. <laughs> he's like looking at him like a hawk and stuff. And uh, Paxton's like, going, dude, 
just stop it, just <laughs> stop it. And he's like, on, I'm remembering all the shit of all the authority figures coming down on me. And, and he said that, that uh, Lance, at one point, he gives him the, uh, gives the police officer his information. And the police officer looks down. At that time, he moves forward. He just kind of stares across <laughs> him at the t- and he says that the cop reflexively just kind of went to his side <laughs> for a moment and then calmed down and said, here, just get the fuck out of here. But, you know, that whole deal uh, wow. is kind of That's funny. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. And, of course, Jeanette Goldstein was um, um, in Aliens. Oh, my God. I just remembered her. Vasquez. Thank you. Vasquez. <laughs> yeah. yeah Vasquez. Hey, Vasquez, have you ever been mistaken for a man? <laughs> no, have you? Yeah. That movie has some of the great lines. I love yeah. the uh, the sh- the sergeant who uh, when she goes uh, when Sigourney Weaver comes over and says, uh, "Can I be of any help?" He goes, "I don't know. Can you?" <laughs> I just I love that line so much. She got blown up on the diving board in Lethal Weapon too. Oh, that was him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she was also um, what's his name, John Connor's stepmother or foster mother yes. in T two. Yeah. Oh, she got yeah. blown up on the. That's right. You're right. I thought you were talking about the black guy at that point. Oh, no, okay. no, no, no. She, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't know Joshua Miller, uh, who played Homer, was related to, to Jason Miller, who was the young priest in The Exorcist. Yes. That's interesting. Because yeah, the only uh, thing I, I saw that I recognized was River's Edge. I, didn't, I haven't really seen mm-hmm. him in anything else. Yeah, he hasn't done a whole bunch. Uh, and I, uh, I don't want to speak out of turn. I, I didn't really look him up that much. But I remember looking earlier and finding out that there's been a lot going on in his life uh jason patrick is george c scott's kid and that's I, right I yeah those two confused so when i would see them together wow. i'd be like yeah i know believe it or not right but um yeah uh i i thought that uh he did a great job as homer because he's got this kind of unctuous kid quality he's not a cool kid Right, and he's just trying to be cool, and the idea of being turned at that early age, and and how selfish that is of yeah. of Diamondback, you know. She and she's this whole thing once again that Arrested Development. She wants to have an entire lifetime of going Homer. I'm ta- Look at me when I'm talking to you. Right. I'm thinking about him being 150 years old with this little girl next to him <laughs> pulling, rubbing the TV. And she goes, look at me when I'm talking. And you see him go, he does like a little Homer Simpson shiver <laughs> and starts to turn to her. It's like, Oh man, that's just rough. <laughs> that's hilarious. And then, as you mentioned, we have Tim Thomerson who, um, he played, uh, Louis Colton. Louis, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Louis Louis. Um, see, I didn't know he was a stand-up comedian. To me, he was doll man. You know, right. from those mm-hmm. Charles Band films or Trancers, yeah. you know. Yeah. No, he started out, I, I I wish I could remember if he was on like the gong show, but he was on TV. He was like a big uh, guy on uh, back in the 70s when variety shows were big. He, he used to be on variety shows a lot as the comedian who would come rolling on by. Interesting, interesting. And um, so then we've got uh, Troy Evans, who played the plainclothes detective. Um, he he's another guy that you've seen. He's one of those character actors you've seen yeah. him a zillion times, but you can't remember his name. You know, Under Siege, Demolition Man, Teen Wolf, which I I believe I was he the principal in that or he was the principal in that. I, I think he was also the principal in Twin Peaks, who's the one who has to say that Laura Palmer is dead, and he's like talking in the microphone and he's That's starting right. to cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was really good in that. He was also in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but I I haven't seen that in a while, so I don't remember. Uh, yeah, boy, I don't. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. So what I wanted yeah. to mention was yeah. um, 
Aside from the, the, the connection of the aliens trifecta that we talked about, do you remember, especially Michael, the dude who was at the bar that, um, which I love when... Sitting sitting at the bar? Yeah. He yeah. was the biker in T2, T2 that Arnold took his clothes. Yeah. I forgot to say please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I recognized him right away. Yeah. I was like, that, oh, I cool, did too. that's that guy. <laughs> I did too. Now, now it's weird. I, I don't know if you folks. Do you know of a band called Little Caesar? They were big in the uh, I know of late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, Little. <laughs> so there was a band called Little Caesar. The the tattooed guy who hits him with the uh, pool cue was the lead singer of that band. Oh really? Yeah, I was laughing when I saw in that. T two. Oh, interesting. Yeah, in T two. And then he grabs him and he goes, "Huh." Yep, he goes, whoo, and then throws him out the window. Yeah, <laughs> a, a real studly moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, so this, I, I like this. I love the combination of vampire film and Western. There aren't too many Western horror movies out there. There's a few, you know, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter and Bill the Kid versus Dracula. But did um, you say Ravenous was a good one, or was that? Yes. Yeah. Ravenous, Ravenous is a good great. one. Uh, the uh, the Borrowers. Yeah, there's one called Sundown. It was done by, I think, Anthony Hickox, the guy who did Waxwork back in the oh. 80s. And it's a, it's a humorous one. I think Brad Dourif's in it. But uh, it's a, like a retirement community where people are uh, – it's the West – and the vampires and the cowboys have kind of come to a detente. And so now that there's great SPF sunscreen, <laughs> they're, they're going around during the day and stuff. But someone finally gets hungry for human blood and, uh, and they end up uh, blowing it all up and turn into a, a wild melee western so that they can use the old stuntmen who would fall off of horses and stuff in, in this oh, that's car cool. movie. Yeah, it's that's pretty awesome. Fun. This movie uh, cost five million to make, and it only made three million at the box office, yeah. which is kind of disappointing. It's too bad. It's been found since, but it's also one of those things. That, as much as we like it, I think it also it, it speaks to the type of person that you are and what you really want to see in a, in a mm. horror movie. Because I remember showing it to people and like going, "Oh, it's rednecks in a trailer park that are vampires. What do I care about redneck vampires?" I'm like, <laughs> I don't think you're getting it. It's Bonnie right. and Clyde. <laughs> yeah, yeah and the whole idea of the of the road and I, and I think uh when it's found people are usually really excited by it 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 dates but it doesn't date as bad as some films uh and i think part of that is because it takes place in an area that almost feels timeless right there aren't yeah. that many movies that do the heartland in that way right yeah you have uh cities or you have nice little suburbs but you don't usually have farms, you know, stuff like that, where uh, you're you're in an area where your nearest neighbor could be uh, 10 miles away and you have a sheriff. And if you have a problem, you have to go to the sheriff. And uh, and I thought that was interesting. The thing that never worked and Bigelow basically said that at the uh, Museum of Modern Art thing. Uh, my friend told me later, he goes, yeah, she she didn't know what to do to end the thing. And they went with the idea of the blood transfusion. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't really it works, but it doesn't work. You know, it's a it's a it's a dos ex machina. Yeah, you have to have. This. Right. Right. I hated that. <laughs> the first time I saw it, I hated the blood. Well, I got to say, this is not one of my favorite movies, even though it does have all these strengths. And like now as that I'm older, I can see it, that it has qualities, quality aspects to it. But like just in terms of watching it, 
it's not one of my favorites. Um, and I can't really pinpoint why exactly, but I mean, there's some awesome moments, you know, some awesome scenes, like the whole, you know, the whole Bill Paxton semi scene is fucking awesome. But like, I don't know. Um, but anyway, um, the, I hated the blood transfusion. It just seemed too easy and too, yeah, like, just like they didn't really, I mean, they did mention it before the end because, you know, right. Caleb, you know, had it done. But like, I don't know. It just felt like a scientific solution to a not spiritual. What's the word? Like supernatural. Paranormal, paranormal, supernatural problem. And they were just like, oh, all you got to do is do a little blood transfusion and you're good to go. And I was like, really? That's <laughs> thing, I remember a guy I worked with at Blockbuster Video when this came out was thought it was a brilliant idea. He's like, why didn't anyone think of that before? Blood transfusion, of course. <laughs> yeah. That's like well, when I saw, um, oh my goodness, ginger snaps. I saw ginger snaps and I was like going, why was it always the wolf man? The perfect metaphor is that it's a teenage girl. It makes all the sense in the fucking world. <laughs> like, how can I ever look at Lyle Talbot again and, and think that, you know, that works? You know, and so it's, it's funny. Some people, uh, these things seem like, wow, genius. And other people are like, no. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess Michael Bean was offered the role of Jesse, but he rejected it because he thought the script was too confusing. <laughs> Perhaps, perhaps. Well, I know uh, what's funny and disheartening for a horror fan like myself and someone who is always trying to fight to say, hey, horror deserves its place at the table. There's these old uh, biases that all the actors, uh, they did not know that each of them was asked to be in the movie, even though they all worked on Aliens, because they are all ashamed to try and explain the movie to the other actor. Oh, wow. Think, yeah, thinking that, hmm. oh, there's no way that I'm going to be able to tell them how good this is. They're going to hear vampire movie and they're going to shut off. And so that's, uh, you know, that's a bias that starts early. And uh, I, I've talked with people about this before, how now it's starting to die because the the Janet Maslins are dead and the, and the Pauline Kales are dead, but also the first method actor or studio uh, teachers have died. And now that idea of how film was always the bastard son to theater, everything bowed to theater, theater was it. So when you started going to, to school for this kind of thing and you said that you want to be in film, they'd be like, oh, well, let's see if a, uh, Meisner can work with you. And, and make, <laughs> but, but they are always looking at it like this is crap. And so the idea of working in television was a real you know, downfall. But the right. thing that was always the redheaded stepchild, even though you can go all the way back to Shakespeare with it. In fact, it's the second story ever told. Uh, Har always got this disgraced thing to it. It was always this thing of uh, prestige. There's always this self-conscious, low self-esteem prestige to film uh, that basically sits there and goes, well, at least we're not doing porn or horror. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, <laughs> like the two are oh oars. Yeah, I remember horror being sort of a, yeah, having kind of like a, oh, it's horror, you know, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I mean, Roger tried to suck me into watching a lot of horror movies with him. I was like, eh, you know, I don't, I'm just not kind of, it doesn't really. And then he'd sit me down in front of it and you know, 
40 minutes in, I'd be like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? When I went to film school, it was like that, where the teachers, uh, well, who's, who's a director that you like? I said, well, I, I really love uh, three different ones. And I'd say John Sayles. And they go, oh, John Sayles. And I'd say, uh, I'd say the three Johns, John Sayles. And I go, John Waters. Oh, wow, really? And I said, yeah, and John Carpenter. Oh. And it'd be like, John Carpenter was like, oh, yeah. And then when I started talking about horror movies in any kind of fashion, saying, no, these are legitimately strong films about metaphor. And, and they, they talk directly to her and be like patting me on the head. That's such a sweet little boy. You know, so that that pandering has always been there. And uh, they will learn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some, someday he'll realize that the, the the future for him is a black and white handheld film with a, a broomstick with uh, Hitler's face on it. That's going to be a movie, right? <laughs> you know, and that's one of the things is, you know what, Scott, I remember now you were on the second episode of our live streaming show called Fright Lounge. And Michael, you were also on a later episode, but that's what we're trying to do with that show is we, I'm saying it's not only for the seasoned horror viewer, but it's also for people who aren't sure if they want to get into horror. Mm. And so we try to present it in, on two levels because, you know, you, they might have that stigma that horror is bad or, or a lot of times people have the stigma that it's just always gruesome no matter what. Yet they'll yeah. go and watch CSI, which is rated right. R level gruesomeness every right. week. You right. know? Yeah. Well, I used to say that about Fringe, where people were like, oh, it's a science fiction movie. I said, what, what do you feel when you're watching that? I mean, it, to me, horror is uh, basically uh, taking, uh, uh, giving you a feeling, right? It's going to give you a feeling of fear, dread, surprise, shock, revulsion. But what does it want you to go home with, right? Because you can have a movie that gets scary and stuff, but in the end, you know, if everything's wrapped up in a pretty bow, maybe it's not so much horror. But what did you feel? When you were watching Fringe, uh, where's the utopia? Where's the success? Where is this idea that we're always uh, the, the science fiction that works best and sometimes the horror that works best is hybrid. You know, hybrid vigor makes everything a little bit stronger. So uh, like this movie is Western and horror movie. And I would say that Catherine Bigelow came to it with a higher minded purpose than just being a low budget horror film. And maybe that's where some folks respond to it a little bit differently. You know, they don't hmm. see that as uh, as a plus. Whereas I'm like going, man, it's so great that you can sit there and, and feel the, the grime and the time in this movie, <laughs> as well as the, the as the creepiness. Uh, but uh, I always think that, you know, the uh, uh, horror movies and, and stuff get short shrift uh, constantly. Uh, uh, my big thing is talking about the Oscars and saying uh, all these movies are considered horror movies until a golden statue might be in their future. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Silence of the Lambs open on Valentine's Day of 1990-91, and it was considered a great horror movie. A thinking man's horror movie, which is a left-handed insult as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah. But uh, still calling it a horror movie. And then as soon as it got nominated, it was a thriller, psychological thriller. And we got stuck with a decade of psychological thrillers. Almost horror, not quite horror. Kind of right. horror, not quite horror. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. right, you can right. still watch it. It's okay. It's okay. It's yeah. it's soft core. It's soft core. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, ho it's hotel room porn. It's right, not, right, right. <laughs> So I found in my research, I found there's a scene in this that I didn't notice and I'm going to have to go back and look at it. But apparently it must be, 
I couldn't tell you where. It's probably most likely in the beginning of the film when you kind of see the town and there's a, a movie marquee that says Aliens. And yeah. James Cameron is a guy in, in out in front who gives um, Severn the bird. Really? Oh. Yeah. I don't so the, remember. It's going to be later that. in the film then. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be. It has to be right around the. Uh, the semi thing, because that's the only other time that we see the movies or the, right. the, uh, the town. Yeah. I don't think we see them, the, uh, the movie theater at any, uh, any other given point. I didn't get uh, a, a lot chance of to go back road. and look at that, but yeah, that's another thing that I love the, the incidental moments on the road, uh, where, uh, they're learning uh, the wonderful trick of, of a movie where you have a guy driving a semi saying, here's all the brakes that are on this thing. You know, you don't want to do it wrong. Yeah. Uh, things will blow up, but that whole way uh, that that scene is done is so really cool. Yeah. The guy who's driving feels real. His concern and interest is real. The loneliness that he feels, you know, all these moments, there are only a few moments that stick out like film student stuff. But uh, other than that, it's not bad. Like uh, when K uh, uh, Homer is laying there and the, uh, so that the guy comes over and, uh, and he can suck his blood yeah. and it cuts to the wheel with the light going through it spinning. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's that's pretty film studenty. But other than that, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff in there that's not too bad. You know? I mean, the movie's pretty graphic. I wonder if that scene was cut by the studio or the censors or something. And then they, that's why she chose to cut to the spinning wheel. Perhaps, you know, uh, I mean, I doubt she had any cachet whatsoever. So I think she was probably, you know, going with whatever could be done. Uh, and uh, any cuts that had to be made had to be made. You know? Right. I doubt, doubt she asked anybody for any special favors. One thing I never noticed before in, in, in this viewing, um, re, you know, obviously rewatching it for the show, the opening shot. The very, very first thing we see mosquito. is Caleb slapping a mosquito on his arm. Yeah. And I thought that was brilliant because it just sets up the whole metaphor of vampires being parasites. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I love the idea that we don't even see it first. We hear it over the title. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So it's like it. the, it's in your midst. Right. And it's yeah. invisible. And, and there's like you, this extreme close up of it. Yeah, you know, and, then, and, and and that's the thing about mosquitoes, right? Half the time you don't even know you're being yeah. bit until it's too late. So that's really vampiric, and, and and that's one of those things. In the very beginning of the movie, I was kind of like, oh boy, uh, I was uh, I liked that, but then he says blood sucker when he slaps it. <laughs> that's right. I'm like, oh, that's a little on the nose. And then uh, <laughs> later on, uh, when he's all upset at his friend who comes out and stomps on the front of his truck. And the guy pulls his hat around and goes, you want to go? You want to go? And I'm like, on this feels like uh, Jean Genet or, or, you know, someone who doesn't have testosterone uh, basically <laughs> showing us what a moment of testosterone looks like between these guys. <laughs> but there's, but there's also this thing where he says, I wish I may, I wish I might. And then the woman's name is May. And I was like, oh, no, this is getting really writerly. And then, boom, it's like after that, they hit every beat just really, really strong. And uh, the, the language feels very real. I love the language, even though I made fun out of uh, Tim Thomerson in a way. Uh, I thought he did a pretty good job when he was at the sheriff's department. And he's talking to the sheriff. And yeah. that whole thing felt very real. It was very yeah laid back relaxed i'll oh, see if the kid comes back you know this is this is how fast we move here when you know your livestock dies and just drag it to the edge and let the let the crows <laughs> feed on it yeah 
but life has a different rhythm here. Yeah. And I thought yeah. that that was really kind of cool that uh, they, that it felt very much like the Midwest, even though I've only spent some time in the Midwest and it's someone who uh, once again, sometimes it works where you get a, a director who's not native born to America comes to America and sees the place with different eyes you know, and, and catches the little things. And I think there's a lot of little things in this movie that really work. Yeah. It's funny too, on this viewing, I had forgotten what Jenny Wright's character's name was and about three for the first three quarters, I thought they were calling her Meg. And then they said they said it again, and one of them said May, and I'm like, "Well, is it Meg or is it May?" And then finally, I realized they were saying May. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was hearing both too. Oh, okay. So it wasn't just me. At Interesting points. I was like, "May." Now, what I want to know, I want you guys' opinion. If you're a vampire, okay, and let's say, oh, sunlight is deadly to you, <laughs> why would you live in Arizona to begin right. with? Right. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really dumb. It's like, yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah. like why? There's no shade. There's no trees. There's no buildings. It's flat. <laughs> right, and there's right. sunlight everywhere. <laughs> like, yeah. What are you the, doing? The only rationale I can think of is that it's sort of a, um, it's a thrill to be able to get into the car and quickly put all that shit on the windows so you can't, so the sunlight doesn't get you. It's like how fast can you, uh, you know, play against danger. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think it's also uh, being in that area is where you're going to have less population, more nomadic folk. I mean, uh, it doesn't it doesn't even uh, phase Caleb when he's, she says, I'm here with friends. We're living at the trailer park down at, by by the railroad tracks. And he's like, oh, so the idea of there being I, I think it's it's definitely a conceit but we are bonnie and clyde versus dracula right the 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 movie is bonnie and clyde and dracula mixed together and so you have these outlaws the road is the outlaw world right you don't you don't see outlaw road movies in you know providence rhode island they're not happening That's true. <laughs> yeah they're not they're not going to happen in those areas there's going to be a different type of story that you're going to tell if you're talking about uh um uh, Kittery, Maine, uh, versus the the, uh, the top of Maine, or uh, any of these different areas. I think if you're going to do a western, kind of got to do that where it feels like the wide open plains of the West. But also the idea that you know, in reality, the guy who they based the the killer who did uh, the town of the dreaded sundown uh, was able to get out of it because the police departments weren't talking to each other. You know, Texarkana right. had two different police departments and he was able to f walk between two States. And so, uh, you know, the idea of, uh, I think part of this movie supposed to be taking place in Oklahoma. Another part is Kansas. You know, they're, they're going between these different areas is an air uh, is a place where there's a lot of guns. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot, very little intervention from the law. You know, you're going to have uh, less places that people are going to find you. You can hang out in different areas. So you kind of are like the the, the road. Uh, it's kind of like the hitcher. 
you know, the idea right. of the hitcher is this idea of this creature of the road that's out there. So I think that might be the reason, although once again, incongruous to, to reality, if you were really one, maybe you'd go to Iceland, but even Iceland, you know, they don't have a lot of trees in Iceland, but they do have three months where it's just nothing but darkness that you can have fun <laughs> or Barlow, Alaska, which is, you know, where 30 days of night ends up taking place, which right, right. is kind of a brilliant moment. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, there's a, there's something to be said too for they can dump, they can you know steal cars and dump them at will, and nobody's ever going to catch them. Nobody's going to find them. They can, yeah. you know, there's so much open space for them to just go and run around in. Yeah, yeah, um, and sun is sun, right? I mean, sure you can be in a place that has shady trees, but say you got to get the fuck out of Dodge really quick. Are uh, you going to carry a tree on top of you? No, you're going to have to run no matter where it is. The sun is sun. So, uh, you know, I, I guess there's – I also like the idea of how many retreats can you make on those old country roads. You know, uh, now I've driven through that area, right? And the, you might have one crossroad every 40 miles. You know, you go through wow. Kansas and it's like 444 miles of flat, and uh, the only roads are in between farms and ranches. So it's it's really interesting to think that they would be taking such a weird place to be, you know, or you'll stand out. Where is he? He's on the horizon. How far is that horizon? Oh, he's about 14 miles away, but we can still see him because it's completely flat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Which reminds me of that uh, when you said um, on the horizon that amazing shot of them coming up the hill they're backlit so they look mm -hmm. like silhouettes and there's just fog all around them i love that shot i want that as my uh, my background on my computer <laughs> yeah oh, it's magnificent there's, there's a couple shots that i really love i love the way that they light uh the bar sequence uh where at times the fan light is changing the the, the color they have the light behind the fan uh but it's uh it's also just such a ballsy i mean she she just went for it right they said this is the centerpiece we're gonna have the camera low they're gonna come in naughty naughty is gonna start you know uh from the <laughs> hips down is where the camera is pointing up hero pose and it's just like everybody turns and looks you, there's no point of no return you either make stick that landing or the movie's dead and yeah, so right. I, I thought that it was really really uh, I, I love the arrogance of it it's such a great uh a great directoral and filmmaking flourish to just take all the chances and put them right in one basket. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what did you guys think of the, the Tangerine dream soundtrack? I really enjoyed it. That was cool. Yeah. I liked Especially parts during of certain it. parts. Yeah. yeah. Some parts I thought, I thought it was almost like Charles band, you know, Charles <laughs> band does his own. And there were moments where I was like going, oh, man, this is a little repetitive. But I liked uh, many parts of it. There was just moments I'm not sure if they were just using what they had uh, or if they were intentionally going with something that was really grating. Like when they were heading to, uh, I think it's, oh, there, there's that very uh, Gilligan's Island moment where they speed up. The, the RV to go into the Quonset <laughs> like <laughs> this little thing. The music that's there is just like, oh no, <laughs> just, right? It <laughs> just drew attention to the fact that they overcranked that moment to speed it up like one and a half. Just that's to, hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> that's always I, a mistake. It always looks terrible when they. Speed oh, it does. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't get around it. And going into a Quonset hut, I'm like going, well, at least the trees didn't move. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my God. No, there's one line of dialogue. There's a lot of good ones, but there's one line of dialogue that I always thought was bizarre where Jesse's at the table in the, in the, in the bar and he's talking to the waitress and he's whole, he's got it to the point where he's like hugging her and he's like, your skin's as soft as a preacher's belly. Yeah. yeah. What the hell does that mean? Yeah. I love it. It just sounds so, uh, <laughs> what's the name of colors? Carson McCullers. It's like that kind of writing. It's like this weird yeah. Southern Gothic thing. Right. It cracks me up. I love, uh, we keep odd hours. I have a button that I give to people when I'm at conventions. And if we hang for a long period of time, we're talking, they just seem like one of my folk. I go, have you ever seen the movie Near Dark? I'm like, yes or no. I go, well, here's a little memento for you. And I pull it out and it's a shot of them all around the card table. That's and awesome. uh, I just turn into a button and it says, we keep odd hours on it. <laughs> That's, and I love the fact that they play Russian roulette. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, so, once again, it's so... Um, it's an overworked version of Peck and Paw, which is basically Walter Hill. Uh, so that whole thing of they're like fanning guns that don't have anything in them and the kids laughing, holding his cards and leaning back and yeah. it's all in close up. And I'm like, oh, and that's so guns, guns, guns. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Now, uh, one other question I had, too. Well, probably have a few more here, but um, they kill the victim. And then drink their blood. Now, there was something I saw recently where that was how they stopped the vampire. I can't remember what movie or TV show it was by giving him the blood of someone who was dead. Right. So. Well, dead, dead. Right. There's there's yeah. dead. And then there's someone who they just freshly killed. You know, so I think that that's probably the difference. And, and in this movie. I mean, they don't really go by the idea of saying that they're vampires, but they, they, they are obviously. But they do kill the uh, truck driver, right? They don't kill him first. There's like feeding off of him. Uh, she's right. trying to get uh, uh, Caleb to do it. So I think there's a, a mixture. I think uh, the uh, the idea that they're bored and they just decide to go in and fuck with everybody in a bar. They want to yeah. find shit kicker heaven. And when they do, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they yeah. go in there <laughs> and, and that they go after all the hard guys, right? You know, yeah. guys that normally would be, you know, some a formidable foe in another film. And uh, having Bill Paxton, you know, uh, the whole Buffalo Bill thing and yeah. all that just to get him even angrier. Right. Right. It's not just doesn't just come in and pick on him. He just yeah. he wants him furious. Yeah. He wants to belittle him before he kills him. And yeah. then he, he grabs Caleb and he goes, uh, go ahead, hit him again. I'm trying to teach the boy a lesson. <laughs> so yeah. He does. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's like, dish. I don't give a shit. I need to hit somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of really uh, interesting little pieces that are in that. I, I thought uh, the whole uh, Caleb punching him and the guy and he hits the the pool table and it bounces back a little bit. Yeah, it just gives you that that feeling of heft. You know, he could have just yeah. knocked him in or knocked him to the ground, but hitting that pool table just adds so much to the power of the punch. And uh, I thought it was a really good directorial flourish uh, to to decide to go in that direction. Yeah, I remember being wowed by that when I first saw it. I was like, holy shit, because those things are fucking heavy. Yeah. You know? 
there's a very cool thing as well that happened uh, that's on uh, several scenes in that were improvised. Like they just let the camera roll. And so the whole finger licking good that was improvised and stuff like that. Uh, but Adrian Pazdar had not been uh, squibbed before. And so he was told, you know, you have to breathe out when it's hitting or breathe in, when it's, uh, whichever way it is, when right. it's going to go off. And he said he got distracted because the sound was a guy going like that while the squibs go off. And so that response that he has is the wind is literally knocked out of him. He's going, oh, shit, oh, shit. That's real. Wow. And Paxson comes in and saves the day and comes in and goes, oh, it's tripping. And, and looks at his blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then what oh, does he say? Cool. He says, it, it, it's my life or something like there goes my there goes my life or my so he says something silly and all the vampires laugh that's like, funny. I, I, I forget what it is it's, it's kind of like he thinks he's dying but they're like no you're not dying yeah. right right, right. <laughs> and i got the feeling that the guy by the jukebox what isn't really even an actor like the way he talked just the way he talked he didn't sound like a guy who was acts you know it was just he happened to be in the scene because he looked the right way and then they were saying, okay, after he says this, you say that. After he says is, this, is you that say the that. kid that Caleb let live? No, because that's that's uh, James Legros. Right. Uh, I don't know. It's just the guy. All I remember is he's just the guy by the jukebox. He's got a baseball hat on and a glasses, I think, and a beard. Um, oh, okay. But anyway, he has, and then Bill Paxton fucks with him a little bit, and um, he so he has a few lines, but it's just like. I'm like this guy's not even an actor. Just like they just pulled him in and said, you know, <laughs> say a few lines. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's like uh, I forget what it was. Oh, it's not this movie. Forget it. Uh, it was another. <laughs> movie that I was at. But there are people who are uh, just for photos that are being shown. It's like the production designer and stuff yeah. like that. Like, right. Listen, we need we need somebody to be a dead body in this shot. So can you just lay down? Yeah, right. That's right. Funny. But it wasn't bad, though. I mean, even though he didn't seem like an actor, it seemed like the way a real person would talk. You know, he was trying yeah. so hard to be like, I'm cool, man. It's cool, man. Like, I, like oh, you know, guy. yeah, he just like he was. Oh, yeah. I don't think he was. Yeah. Was almost whispering, you know. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. the biker. That's the biker. Yeah, 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 yeah. He goes, you know what your mother said? When I was, yeah, uh, yeah, he goes. I don't know. I wasn't there, man. I don't know nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right. That's right. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's. Yeah, what, I think what? he was probably an actor because they really take a chance, right? Which is they kill him, they yeah. knock his glasses off, puts the glasses on himself, and he's squeezing his head, and he's like yeah. smacking at it, and, and oh. I'm going, that's a chance you probably wouldn't take with a non-actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a very right. naturalistic actor. I, I maybe a stuntman. The thing I look when I look at this movie, I just think, how much fun would it be to? be bill paxton's character he's so fucking loony yeah and like the face expressions he makes like when the when the caleb's driving the truck at him and he's like come on come on come get me yeah you know and he'll like <laughs> pretend to feel one way and then start cracking up and right you know well, when the guy's I, choking him and he's like oh, yeah oh, oh. I, I think that that's where uh once again the act uh the director uh, it's, a, it's a real testament to the director. I think Adrian Pazdar was saying something like that, where he was going, she was very good in the way that she uh, was very uh, supportive at certain times. You didn't have this thing of like, it's my way or the highway, but she also knew, I mean, how do you, he said, how do you contain a wild cannon 
like uh, Bill Paxton. He goes, <laughs> you don't. He goes, you just let Bill go, but you guide him in, in the ways that uh, work with the scene. And so uh, I think they really got a lot out of having Paxton in there. That his, uh, so much of what he said, you know, polecat, shave polecat or whatever. These were things that he got out of a book. He had a bunch of old West books that he, he was reading just to do, get some ideas. So he was pulling stuff out of there. And I think the uh, Wild Bill was actually an idea that came from Henriksen. Oh, that's what uh, I was going to say. Henriksen. So we're talking about him and he's such a great guy. I got to meet him at a convention. And nobody's talking to Lance Henriksen. He's just sitting what? alone. My and God. everybody's everybody's out talking to the walking dead fuckers. And so uh, I see him and I, I walk over and, you know, Lance, he'll he'll get up. He'll go to the other side of the table and hang with you. And so uh, I, uh, I go, listen, I know I should be asking you about aliens. I know I should be asking about near dark. But you work with Sidney Lumet, man. You worked on Serpico. You worked on Dog Day Afternoon. Fuck. You were, and I think he was in Network. I'm like, holy shit. And he's like, oh. And he goes, Sydney, how great that I get to talk about Sydney. And he just sat there and he said, you know, Sydney Lumet got me my first uh, apartment. He said, I was working on Dog Day Afternoon and I didn't let anybody know that I was living out of my car. And hmm. I said, I was afraid that if they found out I lived out of my car, that they would think I was unreliable and I wouldn't be on set, even though I was, I drove so that I was right next to the set. And he goes, and he said, Sydney just said, you know, this is something I do for some of my actors because we need, you know, we need a, a place for you. So he rented an apartment. He didn't tell him that he rented it for like a year. So he had a place to work for a year on Sydney Lumet because Sydney uh, and Sydney remembered him and brought him into other movies. And so wow. I, I love that kind of thing. And I think it's, it says a lot about his background that he's been able to be in films like that. And he never had that huge role, right. Until he got into genre genre really gave him the huge roles. And I think that's why he loves near dark so much. And we'll talk about that forever because uh, he still, he wants to make a sequel. He keeps uh, every so often he'll get, oh, reach wow. out to, to <laughs> say here, here's how I say that he survived. You know, I want, jesse hooker to, to go on i think this is a character that could hold a movie on his own i'm like on wow All right, man. yeah that'd be cool so <clears throat> let's wrap this up here um uh, final thoughts on near dark uh, michael yeah uh it's i don't think i'll ever watch it again uh, <laughs> um i watched it again because i knew we were going to talk about it and there are some really cool things in it but overall as much as I can see the skill, you know, in it and everything, and apart from, for me, apart from the novelty of having those three uh, aliens, the cast members in it, and for a couple of the Bill Paxton flourishes and, and things like that, um, you know, like I said, the, the, the scene with the semi and all that. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's just a movie that makes me a little uneasy, and maybe it's supposed to, you know, it kind of makes me feel a little bit... Uh, I don't know what it is. It's just like makes me uncomfortable. It's it puts me in a, a maybe because the mood and the tone is so consistent and you know whatever. It just like it makes me. I don't know. It just maybe it's it's <laughs> part of the 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 maybe it was intentional. I don't know. But uh, it, yeah, it make I just eh, I like it, but I don't love it. So nice. Eh, that's all, Scott. 
And just, I'm just wondering what uh, what it is about that that uh, the the feeling of feeling uncomfortable. Is it uncomfortable like you just don't like the characters? Is it because uh, that's a very interesting thing to say when you're watching a horror movie, right? Yeah. Usually that's a plus. Yeah, I think like I don't know. I didn't really latch onto Caleb very much in the beginning of the movie, and then May is just so odd looking that like. I don't know. I think I would have just stayed away from her. <laughs> so mm. like, I, it's almost like the, the setup part of the movie I couldn't really relate to. And then I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I really hated the fact that there was a, a, a kid vampire in it. Like I, I got it that he was an adult in a kid's body, but they did the same thing in Lost Boys. But it was just like, I don't want to watch a movie with a kid in it. Like <laughs> just my bias, you know, <laughs> like I, you know, I, I want to, I want to watch adult. So I get, it was cool idea that he was way older than everybody, but he looked young. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if it, it was the, I don't know what it was, but it just made me feel, I don't know. It all kind of took place. I don't know. It just, Fair I, enough. I don't, I don't know if the reason I don't love the movie is because of me or if it's because of the movie. Yeah. You know, I don't it's know. fair enough. It's, uh, it's just an opinion, but it just interested me that uh, it wasn't like you, you said, well, it was corny or anything like that. You said it has really good looking parts and stuff, but it just, it makes me feel weird. It just makes so me like, uneasy. I, yeah. Where, where I'll hear that is usually like a Serbian film. <laughs> I don't yeah. think of it like, <laughs> oh God. Or, or something like near dark. So I guess, to me. I don't know. There was like no character I could latch on to. Hmm and relate hmm. to like even Caleb I kind of thought like he was just an idiot for the first you know half of the movie like what are you doing dude you know like <laughs> get away from these people go home but like even the the vampires themselves made me really uneasy I was like these people are just like scumbags and like that works because that's how they presented them but it just made me like I don't want to be I don't want to be in that world I don't want to live in the near dark mm. world again I'm good <laughs> You know? It's like I I know you're a vampire and all, but could you at least take a shower once in a while? <laughs> right, right. Well, see, these are all the winning parts for me. The thing that I loved was how much it uh, it talked to Americana in its own way, and it talked to uh, it showed uh, a side that we don't usually see. You know, you'll you'll uh, see cheerleaders, you'll see high school students, you'll see college students, you'll see people in suburbs. But there's a whole aspect of the country that doesn't usually get seen in movies. And to show that in an authentic way, a seemingly authentic way, can't say right. it's authentic, but seemingly authentic way uh, was something that I thought was really appealing. Uh, I also, but I love movies about antiheroes. Uh, I love movies about, like, I loved Drugstore Cowboy uh, and uh, My Own Private Idaho. Uh, things where uh, road movies, I love road movies, and road movies always have this certain fraught with peril kind of feel. So I thought it was kind of a, a clever uh, way to do a road picture uh, that really talks and and showing that people who are in that road kind of lifestyle, the nomadic lifestyle, it is almost like always an eternal twilight. It's almost like you're not part of, of the system. And so the yeah. idea of talking to uh, the outsider and talking to the outlaw, these would normally be you know, the wild bunch, Pike's wild bunch from the movie, the wild bunch, they'd be the long riders. But instead of that, or Bonnie and Clyde, 
that comes along with them. You know, it's going to be them on a on a joyride. But here we have it where it's uh, there's a supernatural element to it, and uh, that I think the idea of eternity to where the West has gone and the tragic romance of the undead, uh, and it really works for me because it's not like. Yeah, there's a, uh, I don't know if you guys saw Sandman or read the Sandman comics. Oh, yeah. But yeah. there's there's this one character who makes a bet with uh, Sandman that he doesn't have to die. He says dying's a, a mug sport. And so uh, every hundred years they meet at the same pub. And when they go there, you see what happens. So he, he stays uh, an asshole for a hundred years. And uh, he says, no, I don't want to die yet. I'm having a great time. And then the second time, uh, he stayed too long in one place. So they think he's a witch and they try to drown him. And he loses all the money that he made in the last hundred years. And he still doesn't want to die. And so he goes through all these different permutations. And in the end, he uh, becomes an 80s businessman and buys the pub. And he's just waiting for the Sandman to appear again. And I love how this movie and that kind of says... For all the time in the world that you have, you're probably not going to do much self-improvement. Right. And so uh, the idea that we're all kind of stuck in this weird thing and that what is most important is that you do something with your impermanence. And so by making a movie about outlaws that never grow up, the lost boys of a different sort, uh, saying that Bonnie and Clyde are going to die or, or will wish they, they were dead, uh, gives value to being mortal and how important it is to try and change what you, it makes the life that you're leaving living mean more. Right. Right. You know, I forgot how much, uh, personally I enjoyed this film. I remember loving it when it first came on VHS. I watched the shit out of it back then. Um, hadn't seen it for what, probably 30 years. So I kind of forgot how the final third went. I forgot the whole sequence where the father and sister end up at the motel so that was sort of like refreshed for me. It was brand almost new again, you know, which was kind of cool. I wasn't quite sure exactly how the movie was going to turn out because I, I didn't remember the ending. You know, I love the cinematography in it. Um, I, I loved yeah. that it was, you know, vampires in, meets a Western kind of thing. Um, and I love the cast, too. So I, I highly recommend Near Dark. I think people should, if they're at least interested in vampire movies, they should check this one out because it's offbeat enough and it's not the same old shit that you've been getting you know they these vampires don't sparkle so right. i definitely recommend this all right so scott it's, can you it's tell me really worth seeing oh sorry what i'm sorry i was gonna say even though i said it it's not my favorite movie it's definitely worth seeing yeah absolutely. Yeah, I'm, i would never tell anybody don't see it it's yeah yeah it's totally worth a watch all right scott can you tell the listeners where to find you online Sure. If you're trying to find me or the book that I wrote called uh, Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy, you can find that at hellbentforhorror.com, all one word. Uh, I have a podcast that talks about everything related to horror. I talk about how horror is part art, part social commentary, how uh, our culture informs the horror that we watch and how the horror that we watch informs the culture. That's Hellbent for Horror as a podcast. And uh, on there, you can find uh, Hellbent for Horror on any of the uh, places that you normally listen to your podcast on uh, and if you're looking to uh, find out a little bit more once again at that website you can find my twitter handle my instagram handle my facebook all of those things are in there as well excellent excellent well thanks for joining me today guys thank you bye thanks for having me
Okay, folks, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you for joining us for our special 2022 13 Days of Hallowtober event in which we're discussing vampire films this year. I just want to briefly remind you that we've got a live streaming monthly series called The Fright Lounge in which we discuss all horror media for seasoned horror fans, as well as those of you who don't know if you want to get into horror. We've also got a new podcast called The Cult Movie Lounge in which award-winning blogger Robert Manel and I discuss all cult movies all the time. And here's, of course, our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies, all of which can be found at our website, Haven Podcasts, that's plural, havenpodcasts.com. And while you're at our website, be sure to click on our Patreon link and Tee Public link to help support the show. We've also got a YouTube page, so please go to youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 and subscribe to it. And don't forget to hit that little bell so you get notifications when we put out new episodes. And of course, we want your feedback, so please email us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And you can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group as well. Then Is Now podcast is part of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please check out the other great shows there at thedorkeningpodcastnetwork.com. That's right, folks. And all of those links, like I said, they're on our website as well as in our show notes of every episode. And we are on all the podcasting apps. So if you like our show, please go to wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review because that bumps us up the list in the algorithm and helps more people to find us. Thank you for joining us today. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com